Good morning. It is July 31, 2021. This is Tommy Ray, and we are in episode 19 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today, we were supposed to have interviewed Joel Barber about ASR, but like any young, bright person, he took off last weekend for a hike in the mountains near Durango. When he returned from the hike, his car would not cooperate, meaning it wouldn't start. So he had to wait until last Monday to get it fixed. He was stuck. That put him behind at work. We will interview him within the next couple of weeks, which should complete our discussions on ASRs. I think I've said before that I love water issues because they involve history, engineering, politics, laws, and several other disciplines all rolled into one. That is what makes water so interesting. But to me, the first, history, is of utmost importance. To understand where we are, we have to know how we got here. So I have delved into quite a bit of history to try to steer these episodes in the right direction. Today, let's step back in time to talk about early Denver and the part water has played. I think you will find it interesting. Much of the information in this episode comes from an internet site called Colorado Encyclopedia. Anna Kennedy authored much of the information presented in the first half of this episode. I learned a lot from her. We tend to think of Denver beginning when gold was discovered in this area. At least, that's what I always heard. Surely, there were prehistoric groups that roamed this area, but not much is known about their activities in Colorado. We do know that by about 1500, Utes from the southwest had spread into the central Rocky Mountains, while Apaches from farther north started to migrate to the central plains. Comanches and Kiowas drove out the Apaches in the early 1700s and formed a century-long trading alliance that lasted until another pair of new groups, the Cheyenne and Arapaho, pushed onto the plains around 1800 after being ousted from their old homelands to the northeast. Despite the long history of American Indians making decent lives for themselves in the area, the so-called Pikes Peak region between the Missouri River and the Rocky Mountains suffered a bad reputation among European Americans in the eastern half of the U.S. before the 1850s. While the areas did attract fur trappers as early as 1816, the vast dry plains and treacherous mountains deterred farmers and other potential immigrants for decades. This began to change in the 1850s when Lewis Ralston and several other prospectors bound for California discovered trace amounts of gold in Ralston Creek in present-day Arvada. William Grant Russell, a farmer and prospector from northern Georgia, heard rumors of the Ralston Creek discovery and joined a party of 104 people who arrived at the South Platte River 
in June 1858 to search for gold. After a series of failures, Russell discovered small amounts of placer gold, gold that could be panned from stream beds on Little Dry Creek in 1858. One of the members of Russell's party documented the find in his journal, which he eventually showed to another experienced prospector named Daniel Cheeseman Oaks. Oaks used those notes on the gold discovery to write history of the gold discoveries on the South Platte River, which he published in the winter of 1858-59 and distributed to several Missouri River towns. That was all it took. This was the beginning of the Colorado Gold Rush. Oaks Guide and others like it caused almost 80,000 people to rush into the Pikes Peak region, some traveling in wagons marked Pikes Peak or Bust. So who came? Many early immigrants who came to the Pikes Peak region were English, German, and Irish contingents from New York, Ohio, Illinois, and Missouri. Denver, for example, was founded in late 1858 by William Larimer, Jr., who was born in Pennsylvania and had Scottish ancestors. Like Larimer, most early immigrants to Denver were relatively well-off and had been in the United States for years, if not generations. More recent immigrants from Europe and Asia usually could not afford the journey before railroads were built. Not only did these first immigrants seek riches, but many of them sought a reprieve from the cramped lifestyle of eastern cities. Some sought refuse from religious intolerance in the east. Many Germans who came to Denver were Jews and wanted to practice religion freely. African-Americans, such as Barney Ford, were also present in early Denver. While some families moved west, most of the early residents in Denver were single men, many of them prospectors, some of them criminals, fleeing the law out east. The first Denverites were often rugged, wild, and lawless spending most of their time in saloons and boarding houses when they were not panning for gold or working other jobs. In the 1860s, Denver's demographics shifted when the railroads were being built. The Union Pacific Railroad, building west across the Great Plains, hired thousands of Irishmen, and the Central Pacific Railroad, building east from San Francisco, recruited Chinese workers. Later in the decade, the Denver and Rio Grande and other Colorado railroads relied heavily on Italian laborers. In the 1880s, Denver's immigrant makeup shifted again when smelters, railroad shops, and construction companies hired Swedes, Italians, Poles, and other Eastern Europeans. The 1890s, saw large numbers of Jews from Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe settle in Colorado. Many were poor and spoke little English. 
Largely confined to a ghetto along West Colfax Avenue, they worked as peddlers, salvagers, junk dealers, and day laborers. In the early 1900s, growing numbers of Japanese, Greek, and Latino immigrants filtered into Denver as the city continued to grow and develop. The new groups came to Denver primarily seeking economic opportunities, and railroads made it possible for them to move quickly and cheaply. The railroad also brought a larger number of families out west, introducing more women into the male-dominated city. So Denver was growing with a diverse population, and all these people needed water. Early Denver, for instance, was a dusty, arid hamlet, fairly devoid of greenery except for brush and cottonwoods scattered along Cherry Creek, the South Platte River, and other natural waterways. To sustain the new community, water had to be brought in from the mountains and foothills via a series of ditches. Early arrivals such as Walter Cheeseman, David Moffat, and James Archer led efforts to bring reliable and safe water service to Denver, which was emerging as Colorado's principal community. Constructing extensive ditch system was a noteworthy engineering accomplishment in the 19th century. Initially, men with shovels, picks, and scraping tools carved out ditches. Then came oxen pulling plows, scrapers, and huge heave oak and iron wagons. A rotary canal builder and railroad excavator, powered by 10 yoke of oxen, scooped out the city ditch and could do the work of 100 men. The essential difference between a ditch and natural drainage is that a ditch generally follows contour lines and drops very gradually in elevation. Ditches, of course, could divert the water far from the natural drainage to where it was needed. Just follow the contour of the land, allowing for some fall. The average, quote, fall of a ditch is about five feet per mile. If the fall is any steeper, the water erodes embankments. If the fall is any shallower, the water will not move. Ditch maintenance was an enormous undertaking. Constant freezing and thawing caused ongoing damage, particularly to wooden flumes, and there were always bank erosions to deal with. Denver's earliest ditches were utilitarian and were not considered as aesthetic or recreational attractions, although hints of these uses were evident. Children sailed toy boats in the ditches, and people of all ages appreciated splashing about on a hot day. But with the benefits of artificial waterways came trouble. Open ditches resulted in occasional drownings, and water scarcity caused friction between ditch users, especially during the dry years. It was believed that ditches were a breeding ground for waterborne diseases, 
such as the typhoid epidemic that broke out during the summer of 1879. The ditches also attracted wandering domestic animals and livestock. As a preview of today's multitude of legal battles over water rights, city officials finally had to intervene to prevent fighting between rural, agricultural, and urban domestic water users. Denver's first waterworks was built in 1871, where F Street, today's 15th Street, met the Platte River. Two holly pumps, an engineering marvel in its day, drew water from a large well sunk in the gravel beds of the river. This new pumping plant, dubbed the Holly Waterworks, had the capacity to provide the thirsty town with 2.5 million gallons of water daily. That's a moderate-sized Pondsworth. Denver Water Today provides up to 500 million gallons of water daily. In those days, Denver had an abundance of water, and most ditches were used solely for agricultural purposes instead of domestic use. Some of the city's early ditches survive to the present and continue to serve useful purposes. The best known among these in Denver is the Highline Canal, sporting picturesque trails lined with cottonwoods and willows. It is among Colorado's historic ditches, those more than 50 years old as designated under the National Historic Preservation Act. A great advancement was the development of underground water conduits, first made of wood staves using the techniques of barrel making, followed by sheet iron pipes. In 1870, Denver became directly linked to Kansas and Wyoming by rail, which allowed the city to bring in wood staves and sheet iron pipes. With this new technology, men proceeded to bury ditches, only occasionally following the course of the ditch itself. Although they were more convenient, the new pipes brought new problems. They easily clogged with dirt and debris and had to be dug up and cleaned out or replaced entirely, tasks that had been easily addressed before the ditches were buried. Moreover, Denver began a period of rapid growth in the early 1880s, a populace swelled by discovery of rich mineral deposits in the mountains to the west. Denver now found itself outgrowing the delivery capacity of its ditches and pipes. It needed a reservoir up the Platte, more water lines and sewer lines. As these improvements were made to accommodate city residents, the old open ditches and their laterals continued to serve agriculture. And there were problems between agriculture and city uses. In 1874, Denver instituted water police, officers responsible for patrolling ditches, intervening in water disputes, stopping water diversions, and generally maintaining peace around the ditches. 
By 1882, there were 30 water police under the leadership of Water Commissioner Sidney Roberts. These guardians patrolled nearly a thousand miles of street ditches, and their clashes with residents reflected the high level of emotion surrounding water issues. For instance, during the summer of 1875, water in City Ditch periodically failed to reach the city due to upstream farmers and homeowners diverting water onto their land. On August 13, 1875, the Denver Times reported that when water police arrived at the headgates to determine the problem, housewives attempted to drive them away with clubs, brooms, mops, and second-hand umbrellas. I think we have explained that just because water runs through your property, you do not own it or have a right to use any of it. But many had a hard time accepting that. As stated in the first episode, it was 1882 that the court system began to recognize water rights to attempt to head off many disputes. People who used water were asked to come to the court and sign an affidavit as to when they first started using water, how much they diverted, where they used it, and for what purpose. They then had legal title to their water right and at least could protect it in court. It was surely a long time before it was accepted that ditches that ran through a person's property could not simply be tapped into. In 1902, water police began locking city ditch headgates, allowing water to flow in Denver. On one occasion, farmers retaliated by smashing open the gates with axes and standing guards with shotguns, daring anyone to stop them from watering their fields. An arrest warrant was issued for a supposed leader of the water thieves, Julius Breeze, but he was never apprehended and a battle never ensued. The city then threatened to cancel the annual water contract of any farmer who had resorted to such tactics. In some instances, dealing with angry, drought-crazed farmers and settlers fell to the ditch riders and ditch companies rather than an organized force of water police. As water became more in demand, it seems water used in Denver was a contentious issue. It still is. This has been a fun history lesson. I hope you enjoyed it. Let's stop. I don't know what issue we'll dive into next time, but it will be wet. I'm sure the citizens back then enjoyed mountain streams as much as we do. So enjoy a few seconds of one. See you next time.